Hi everybody, welcome to episode 8 of Something to Eat and Something to Read. Today's episode we're going to be talking about books that we love, books that our readers love. Um, We're going to be talking about Ruman Allen's amazing book, Leave the World Behind, and lots more. Um, This is a podcast for people who love food and cooking and reading about food and cooking by me, food writer Sophie Hansen from Orange, New South Wales, and Jermaine Lees, bibliotherapist from Sydney, New South Wales. Hi Jermaine, how are you? Hi, Sophie. Very well, thanks. And looking forward to sharing uh, more about books that our listeners are reading and loving too. I thought it was a really um, exciting new development to start yes. getting emails recommending books to us. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very, very exciting. And and speaking of our listeners who we just appreciate so much, if you do like the podcast, if you've been listening to it, we would love it if you would um, leave us a little uh, star review, rate us, do whatever you've got a minute for because it really does help other people find this tiny little corner of the podverse that we <laughs> inhabit. So, um, yeah, if you're enjoying it, we'd love it if you could share it and give us a little rate and review. Thank you so much. So, Jermaine, we're starting with a recommendation yeah. from a listener, I think, today. Yeah, that's right. It was really nice a few weeks after our last episode aired where we had a letter from a nurse who was working with Afghan refugees and asylum seekers and feeling quite burnt out looking for a reset. This listener wrote in offering another recommendation for her to help and I was thinking how lovely it is that we're creating this community where people want to reach out to other people and these small acts of generosity like sharing a book that you've loved that's worked for you or or as we already you know talk about the food that can do that too and how that's spreading beyond us so I thought it was really important to read this and um and invite people to always contact us uh and be part of the conversation too Mm. so this listener wrote saying, I have another recommendation for your letter writer, The Lincoln Highway by Amor Tolls. I found his writing to be extremely heartwarming and uplifting and a great way to see the positive in the world. There's a similar feeling when watching Ted Lasso. It's very hard not to walk away without a bit of a glow and feeling of happiness. I had the same experience when reading Amor Tolls' earlier book, A Gentleman in Moscow. It has stuck with me for years. Now, it's so interesting that she wrote about Amor Tolls because he's an author I've been meaning to read for ages. And I don't know if you're like this as well, but sometimes when a book becomes so huge and popular, I feel like I don't want to read it yet until all that noise has died down and I can read it just without any kind of expectation. And and I kind of regret now that I haven't already <laughs> Um but a friend, but so many people I know loved a gentleman in Moscow. Um, and actually a friend commented about it helping her get through lockdown last year because it is actually about a, a man who's stuck inside a hotel room um, and how his small space actually opens up his mind. Um, have you actually, have you read? No, and, no, but it's really funny because I have. I was reading a good friend of the pod, Maggie McKellar, author, um, her beautiful newsletter, The Sit Spot, the other day, and she recommended The Lincoln Highway, and um, I always love her recommendations. So I queued it up. I had a credit on Audible, and I've queued it up to listen to. Um, we, I've actually okay. been listening to a book um, with my son. He had to read it for, for school and we were a little bit behind with the reading so we've been listening to it on our drives in and out of town yep. called um, Monster Calls by Kay. Is it Kay? I forgot the 
it with me um when a monster calls and it's just so beautiful and um a really really beautiful book to listen to with children I think 12 year olds upwards but right. that was a, bit of a side note very very sad but beautiful so anyway we've just finished that this morning and I had yeah. to pull over I was crying so much in the car um and <laughs> so the Lincoln Highway is next up for me so I'm really looking forward to it so thanks for the the nudge <laughs> yes and it's funny all these links that we can find in things that um after I'd received this recommendation I happened to come across an interview with Amor Tolls and it actually links back to our conversations that we had last time as well about how art provides these gaps and we as um the receivers can fill them in whatever way we need to and he was talking about the gaps filled with historical fiction and I hadn't I know I prefer reading historical fiction to reading uh, about history in a textbook and um, I've never really kind of been able to articulate why but he talks about his approach to writing a book is like a stage set and the backdrop gives a sense of perspective and distance. So history for him is this painted landscape or the backdrop I should say and and he believes it shouldn't be very precise. It's not hyper-realism. It should be impressionist. And I just thought that was a really interesting mm. idea about these backdrops of history being like impressionist pieces of art. And, yeah, I was curious about what, mm. what you think about that. Yeah, I love that. And I love that idea of of a, a, the gap in a book. Can you explain to me, you know, we talk a lot about the shape a book leaves on you. What do you, how do you see the gap? And the shape is being different, or is it sort of one and the same in your head? Yeah, I, it's that's um, an interesting question, isn't it? Because I kind of see the shape as an overall impression, maybe mm-hmm. that's left by a book, that's shaped by um, the overall experience of the book and the time in which we've read it, and what's going on around us at time culturally and on the world stage, or in our own tiny microcosm of our private personal life. Whereas I'm thinking now the gap is this purposely left space that that creates the conversation between the reader and the author or the artist and the viewer Mm -hmm. or the listener and the music. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe that it's a more active space Mm. in that it's this gap that needs to be filled because the artist has purposely left room for the um, viewer or reader or listener to 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 fill it, and like mum's chair think, um, and the painting, maybe exactly, exactly <laughs> mm. that lovely idea. Yeah, of, yeah. Well, you, thank you. You explained that really well. Yeah. I, and and I think that when we come to talking about today's book, um, we'll dig into that a little bit more because there is a very big gap. Right. Okay, but first we're going to switch things around today. Um, We're actually going to start with our reader letter first just because we wanted to make it like super clear and obvious to everybody that um, while we are a podcast about books and we always talk about a particular book every episode, it's really just a podcast about life and all the themes that the books that we love and the food that we love kind of throw out there for us. So also when we say you know we're just talking about our life but it's how books and food um help keep us sane perhaps as well yes yes yeah they do don't they there's um <laughs> there's sort of things in our 
tiny things in our control, which are actually big things. But anyway, okay, so here's our letter today and it's another really poignant one, um, but I'll read it out and then we've got some thoughts. So she, she writes, Dear Sophie and Jermaine, thank you so much for your delightful and original podcast. You're welcome. Um, I'm, ready, I'm writing to you because I would love your recommendations on something to eat and something to read that relates to my mum in this season of her life. In March 2020, as Australia locked down against COVID for the first time, my mother was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. I recall her phoning me with the news. They suspect it's Parkinson's, she said in a small voice. She had recently seen a neurologist, and while I anticipated a diagnosis of sorts, Parkinson's was not on my radar. The news arrived as we were going into lockdown, which meant we couldn't even go to her house and give her a hug. It was weeks before we could physically be with her, adding to what was already challenging news for our family to process. Fast forward two years and mum is living with Parkinson's. She is a poster girl for optimism and positive thinking, religiously doing her exercises every day, eating well and doing everything she can to stave off going on medication. However, Parkinson's is neurodegenerative and I have watched her go from being the hostess with the mostess, organising countless dinner parties, regularly entertaining and cooking up a storm, to quietly struggling with her utensils, not having the upper body strength or manual dexterity to slice through meat or steamed vegetables, stir stiff cookie doughs, stuff turkeys or pull the skin off the Christmas ham without help. There are no more dinner parties at mum and dad's. Dad has taken on the lion's share of the cooking while mum has taken on more of an advisory role. She can still make a cracking apple pie or pudding though, it just takes a little bit longer and a little bit of help. We now regularly have mum and dad over for dinner. I notice the meals that give her the most joy are those that require only her hands to eat or at most a spoon. Burger nights are popular, but there are only so many of those you can host. And given her sensitivity to spicy foods or rich tomato dishes and my father's aversion to seafood and salad, aka rabbit food, I'm running out of ideas of nourishing meals that are easy for her to eat but still offer a sense of occasion. So, Sophie, I I guess I was wondering if you could possibly have some meal suggestions that I can add to my repertoire and, Jermaine, a book recommendation that can help me gracefully navigate this new chapter and the challenges that undoubtedly lie ahead. Yours, a grateful listener. P.S. I love this little P.S. Please don't interpret this as a pity Mm. party. I share this with you as an opportunity to to identify ways of nourishing those in our community who deserve special but often get dished up convenient as carers and family members get emotionally and physically overwhelmed with everything they have to do and be. And as we all know, creativity often takes a backseat when we've got too much on our plates. Um, yeah, so I think it's wow. Thank you so much, listener, for writing that in and mm. sharing that that story. And I know whether it's Parkinson's or something else, I know a lot of people in our world um, are suffering and challenging and dealing with lots of challenging times. And I really loved what you said about people deserving special but getting dished up convenient. Um, mm. What do you think, Jermaine? I totally agree that um, with what you just said then and. I love how much of her mother, even though as she's noticing that life is changing and she's in a different season, her, her mother's still so much her mother and um, <laughs> that she's in a, an advisory role in the kitchen. Um, mm. I thought that was really nice that she's still finding a way to be really um, involved and I'd be really interested to hear your food thoughts on this one to to move away from convenience and make special. Well, okay, so I'll go first. Um, So I I was just really thinking um, small, small things um, which feel not fussy but a bit special. Um, So I was thinking um, like metza, metza meals, like sort of big platters of – small things that you can kind of eat with your fingers and really I love eating with my hands and I think that 
all of us do secretly, even though we sometimes think we shouldn't be <laughs> polite or whatever, a big kind of platter. You know, I, I love a chatter platter, but you can make it feel special. You know, I was thinking um, I've been making a bit of pita bread recently, but of course you can just buy it and warm it up so it's nice and soft and, you know, a big, big platter of soft pita breads, maybe a little kofta, a little beautiful meatballs with lots of herbs and some really gentle spices some cumin cardamom and things like that to make it feel a bit special um you know some little uh small meatballs um like a little tabbouleh some beautiful baba ganoush eggplants are in season at the moment I do also a really I've got a recipe and I'll share it in the show notes for a zucchini hummus where you roast zucchini and then you blend it up with chickpeas and a bit of tahini and lemon juice so um lots of big flavors but not really spicy and not overwhelming um but I think a beautiful, big, generous mezza plate or platter that everybody can kind of take what they want and eat with your hands. You know, I think um, that pressure of having to use the utensils when it's not comfortable or possible, um, just to take it away yeah. completely. Um, also, I love the idea of um, a little soup that you don't have to eat with a spoon, but served in little like teacups oh. or coffee cups. You know, I had a... Um, a cold carrots, carrot and ginger soup the other day and there was heaps of ginger in it um, and it was just so beautiful on a hot day. So a little soup in a little cup would be really nice and it feels special. Um, if that's too tricky, I'm not too sure, um, soup might not be the go. But I think just small things that feel special, uh, little hand pies I think are gorgeous. I've got a recipe for, and I'll share this one too, um, little herb and cheese hand pies and you just do like a ricotta and creme fraiche mixture with some egg and parmesan and stir through heaps of fresh herbs and then fold that over into some rough puff pastry that you can buy or make and bake. And they are really beautiful with a little pickle or something like that. So I think special, yes, or dumplings, anything like that, that you can just sort of pick up and dip, dredge through a yummy dip and pop in your mouth. Um, yeah. But I like that idea of, of just sort of a very communal, everybody's eating with their hands. It's very relaxed, but it's, mm. you know, it feels a bit special at the same time. So, yeah, that's what I was thinking. And I, I'm going to put together a little mezzo, um a few recipes um, in my newsletter, well, in our newsletter for, for this um, writer, and I hope I hope that helps. But it sounds like you're doing the most incredible job of making your meals for your parents feel special. So just taking my hat off to you and all you're doing because it sounds very full of love. <laughs> Definitely. And also uh, nutritious, those little, you know, when I was struck with this idea of convenience food and that just echoes in my mind uh not necessarily that nutritious or um, fresh. And I think, as you said, with like a mezza platter, you've got uh, a really healthy small foods as well as really tasty and that feeling of mm. special and it mm. sounds, sounds delicious. So we kind of maybe are a bit out of practice now with this whole after COVID, well, not after, with COVID and the social distancing and, and everyone having their individual food and not sharing and, and there's something about being in family and showing love and, and actually sitting around, as you say, all eating from the same platter mm. that I think adds an emotional element to the meal as well, particularly yeah. now. I hope so. I hope so. Um, I'm really keen to hear your book recommendation. What what would you say? <laughs> Yes. So, well, the book I've decided at first was like, well, why have you said this one? It's called The End of Your Life Book Club by Will Schwalb. And I, I know did it read doesn't the heading sound and uplifting. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> but I know I sort of think, what? Because it turned me off reading it for so long. And yet I found it the most beautiful 
uh, uplifting and hopeful recording of a parent-child, adult-parent-child relationship. And I thought of this book because I think um, it was also written in the letter somewhere that, yeah, the letter writer said, while this chapter is not one I willingly welcomed, it has served up some of the most joyful and poignant moments I've ever had with my mum. And that's exactly what Will's sentiment is about this time he spent with his mother. So he's an American, New Yorker, uh, I think he's an editor and he's also now a writer. And actually he has a podcast as well, uh, well, he used to years ago, where people talk about the books that changed their lives. Ah. I can't remember what's We'll find that that out. Which I found after. Right, yeah. Um, So he, um, so this book is a memoir that he wrote after his mother was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in her 70s and he started accompanying her to the chemo appointments and they'd be stuck in this hospital room for six or seven hours at a time and obviously coming up with conversation and and the fear of those conversations at that sort of time was really difficult and one day he just happened to say to her well what are you reading now and they got into this conversation about what she was reading and then what he was reading and then it they just naturally started deciding to read the same books together so they would have something to talk about and he writes about how those books became a bit of a proxy for talking about the most meaningful things in their lives without having to talk about themselves and I've always I've often thought this actually with my own book writing to Sonia and and in uh, reading the seasons in interviews who are asked oh how did you become such good friends through letter writing and I think when you talk about books, you give away a lot more of yourself than you realise you were doing at the time. And so when something's really meaningful for you or it leads you to a big philosophical question, you actually are sharing a lot more than you would if someone said to you straight up, what are your thoughts on mm. whatever that big topic might be? And I, so I think this book beautifully illustrates that as well. And they got to know each other in a different way and they um, got to also ask each other the big questions through these books. And I know that all our listeners, uh, obviously that's why they're listening, would also agree that reading is always about doing something. But he also writes about how it can be a way of knowing how to what to do in our lives when we feel very lost and uh, particularly with these sorts of really big, momentous, all these, yeah, um, particularly facing illness or degenerative disease um, and for him obviously ultimately the death of his mother. But she said a lovely thing about how um, reading isn't the opposite of doing, it's the opposite of dying. And I Mm -hmm. thought that was such a, yeah, strong moment and how important reading can be for us to handle whatever chapter of life we're in with with grace which is exactly what our letter writer was um hoping for so I really hope this book helps her feel less alone and echoes a bit of her own experience so far and also it's got a great book list in it with all the books that he and his mother read together and they read everything from the classics to popular fiction to crime um poetry so yeah it's just yeah, it's not at all, I mean, it's sad. Oh, it's just everything. It's life. It's all the joy and the sorrow intertwined mm. through amazing books. So, oh, yeah. Jermaine, I, wow. hope, I hope that helps. 
Thank you for that. I'm, I know that all of us will be rushing off to locate a copy of that book because it sounds um, incredibly special. Thank you so much. To our beautiful writer, we're sending you and your whole family, your mum especially, lots of love and we hope that those little recommendations help a little bit. We are going to move on to our book now, um, Leave the World Behind by Ruman Allen. Um, shall I give a little synopsis, Jermaine, and then we can have a quick yeah, chat? Okay, so. so it's a domestic drama with a hint of horror about an aspirational middle-class New York family. <laughs> um, we, you know, the type I'm sure teenagers glued to their phones, parents glued to their careers and anxious about the <laughs> relationship. Uh, so Claire and Amanda are the parents and their children, Archie and Rose, book a uh, sort of quite fancy Airbnb in the Outer Hamptons, quite remote, for a summer holiday. Um, they Late on the first night of their holiday, there's a knock on the door. It's Ruth and GH, the owners of the property, who explain they've come from New York where there seems to have been a citywide blackout. Um, they were out when it happened and because they live in a high-rise building and they can't manage the stairs, they had no choice, they said, but to come and stay in their property. There's like a granny flat. So What In Shoes is a really uneasy story uh, of isolation, complicated by race and tinged by horror, and we never really know what is happening, which should be incredibly frustrating, but somehow Alan gives you just enough information to make it gripping. Um, did you find it frustrating, mm. this, this, uh, the unknowing or, or the gap, I guess, or did it work for you? Oh, it's really interesting. I read this book when it first came out, which was just before the pandemic. And I, I was thinking it has such a different flavour reading it now with mm. the world as it is. But um, I just thought the suspense was so well carried through. And I've since read it's described as a disaster novel without the disaster. And yeah. um, I thought that was really clever. But thinking about the frustration aspect, I you know, it's my thing about once I read a book I love, I can't help. Oh, this is the gap, isn't it? I want to talk to the author. So I end yeah. up going to all their interviews and trying to get in their head. And um, one interview I listened to was that he came up with this idea while on holiday with his own family to Long Island, which I think he said was in 2017, and um, staying at a very lovely Airbnb. And it was so idyllic that he decided he wanted to use that setting to tell a really different story. Mm. And it was going to be this metaphor of trapping people in a house, forcing them to talk about their relationships with one another and the planet. Um, but then the metaphor became literal because of lockdown happening so soon after the publication. But, but with the frustration aspect, um, the BBC Books and Authors interview I listened to, uh, the interviewer talked about Alfred Hitchcock and Ruman Alum didn't know this until the interview. It's really interesting. But the Hitchcock always said that writers get suspense wrong because they keep the secrets from the audience. But in um, Alum's book, we get more information than the characters do, which I found mm. really enthralling. Um, yet while the book gives you kind of a few extra facts and a bit of a future view, you're still left to draw your own conclusions and which Alan thought was so important to keep this level of fear. And the he actually talks about the gap here, that um, the gap then has to be filled with whatever you are most afraid of. So he sort of said, mm. you know, what's your monster under the bed? And for me, when I first read this, 
um, oh, probably not actually my first reader. I was thinking if I had read this 20 years ago, say, I the gap for me or the monster under the bed for me, I would have thought, oh, my God, it's terrorism. Um, but reading it now, I feel this, it does leave a massive sense of unease because I think it's a natural disaster and no one's going to be able to mm. help contain that or stop it. Um, what about you? What's your monster under the bed? Mm-hmm. Well, I, that's one of the things I love so much about this book is that it, it gives you the space, as we talked about earlier, to come in with your own gap or monster. I guess climate change is probably the one I, I think of and I think that's possibly what the author was thinking of as well and I've heard him kind of hint at that in interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, right now we, we've, we've got a, um, a war in Ukraine where there's Europe is in a very scary mm. position. That that could be the monster, you know. Another war. I mean, that, that's the, yeah. I guess it's insert your great fear here kind of situation, which is, I mean, we're not selling it as a relaxing book to read, and, and it isn't. Um, but it's fascinating, and I guess one of the reasons why we chose it for this podcast, which is so much about food, is how he sets it up and how he uses domesticity and food to really, um, yeah put us in that story um and I I think um the New Yorker did a review of the book and and the writer Hillary Kelly really touched on this really well she's like food may keep you alive but the emotional wallop of a crumbling civilization can't be numbed by a fiber-filled date and nut bar um but you know every every kind of disaster that they face in this book um they seem to sort of rush to the kitchen and you know, make a chocolate and brie sandwich, which yep. I'm still not convinced about, I have to say. Amanda has this <laughs> kind of cure-all chocolate and brie sandwich, which um, anyway, it's just I don't know about that one. Yeah, um, I think that's so. And there's a couple of times when Amanda's so terrified and lost with what to do next, She's like, then she bakes the cake mm. and oh, we'll eat cake now. Um, yeah. And it's that clinging to to the domestic equilibrium, I think I saw it described somewhere, and like, and and even Ruth does it through. I'm going to do the washing. Mm. I'm going to change the sheets. It's, and it is. It made me reflect on times when I feel out of control or stressed. That hanging the washing feels really calming. Or and I know for you, oh. it's getting your hands in dough and mm. um, cooking. Mm. And there is because it, that. Yeah. What do you think that is? Well, we saw that in that in um, the unheard that we talked about. Oh, I can't remember episode mm. three. I think by was it Nikki French? Sentimental blank. Nikki um, French. Yeah. Nikki French. And how you know when when the authors brought the tension up to a certain point, they'd kind of ground us all by you know talking about breakfast in the garden with buttery croissants and strawberries and it's sort of this this is happening here, but on a, a kind of a different level. And I love. I think. Mm. I think his writing is really amazing Um, and I love how he builds the characters not by saying Amanda looks like this and she wears this and she went to college here, et cetera, but this is what Amanda buys when she goes to the supermarket, you know, Um, and how she buys the organic tomatoes just wrapped in plastic and cake in a box (laughs) that you make from a box. I think those two things tell us so much about her way more than 10 pages or two pages even of, of telling us about her family background and he talked about this really well on the ABC's book show podcast yeah. and I'll link to that um but he he, he talks about that kind of un- universal human cu- curiosity we all have about possessions and labels and food you know like I'm always 
peeking into people's trolleys at the supermarket and wondering, making yeah, kind of stories up about people just because of what was in their trolley. Do you do that too? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, all the time. I think from childhood actually. Just, yeah, I, I always, and I love doing that more at Harris Farm than the supermarket because, you know, you see that's when people are obviously buying for doing a dinner party or, do, or before yes. lockdown I used to notice this. But buying the all the really unusual fruit in seasonal veg, and you think, oh wow, they must be having people over if they're going to use figs or whatever it might yeah. be. But um, yeah, making up stories about what or what kind of house must they live in if they're buying that brand of all that well, really he, expensive um, olive oil. Yeah, and he he said in that ABC interview, he said the stuff we buy is the story we tell about ourselves. So we're the kind of family that buys kale and makes a kale salad on our holiday, but we're also the family that will buy a box of donuts from the grocery store because we're down to earth and we don't take ourselves too seriously. And I, I just think that is so, yeah. it's spot on, isn't it? Like that's, yeah, we will unwillingly and unconsciously communicate so much about ourselves by, by what we're, by what we're buying. And I was shopping for a child's birthday party last year and, you know, my trolley was full of junk and I was like trying to cover it all with my shopping bags. I was really embarrassed. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's just the humanity of it all. But, um, yeah, so did you enjoyed this book, did you, Jermaine? Yeah, well, actually it was my suggestion, wasn't it, mm. after having read it the first time. I love his writing. I'm a bit in love with him actually. I read a few years ago um, his book, that kind of mother, I think it was called. And I think he writes female characters extremely well. Like I was really shocked when I realised that book had been written by male because the main character is a, a mother. And, again, he explores class, ethnicity, um, gender roles really quietly but in a way that becomes really amplified, you know, just the mm. subtle like even describing Amanda, she has a thought about a work colleague who is of Korean heritage and then she thinks to herself and she's having issues with her and then she thinks to herself, I always find her American accent so incongruous and he writes, this was so racist she could never admit it to anyone. Just, you know, these asides that she doesn't, that he just, he brings up um, these unconscious thoughts that, characters actually have you know even mm. like when um Ruth and GH arrive you know they're um I've got my quotes somewhere here because they're black she says to herself these people don't look like the sort to own such a beautiful house they might though clean it and yet that's her fear talking yet it's not even she would never describe herself as racist it's this inbuilt kind of um yeah i and i just think he he makes you i don't know he just really makes you stop and think without lecturing or throwing it really strongly out there i i just thought and he does that extremely well with class too which is exactly why he talks about the food isn't it the mm. organic tomatoes i mean the irony of the organic tomatoes wrapped in the plastic but mm. the particular brands that certain people will buy which will put them in a certain class um and I love I, that he's not just, um, yeah. yeah and he's not slamming these people or saying let's cancel these people he's just pointing it out and he's not you know even yeah. in an interview about that scene where 
um, they've arrived and Amanda feels, you know, would it be racist not to let them in, you know, because they're black or to let them in or, you know, she's, and he even said like that's a defensible position, you know, it's in the middle of the night, your children are sleeping upstairs, people knock on the door, you know, that's, that's, Mm. that's an uneasy situation to be in regardless. So he's not, um, going with pitchforks to get all these people he's just exploring it and he's pointing it out and he's making us people think and he also you know so he is the children of I think Bangladeshi immigrants and he so and he grew up he's a gay man and he said you know as someone who's not black or white and not straight and all these things I've I've sort Mm. of watched a lot of issues from a sort of outsider's position and, and, and he thinks maybe that's why he can write about them with such clarity. And I think that's a really interesting yeah. thing for us as the readers to be aware of as well because he does, as you say, he writes these characters so beautifully um, and he points out so many small and big things that people do without even realising it. Um, in yes, such a, I guess I think he does so well. He points out, um, yeah, yeah, he points out unconscious bias. Mm. He points out um, the effects of our culture and socialization in ways that, you know, are often blind. And, Mm. and as you say, he does it without making them villains. I think he beautifully shows how flawed Mm. humanity is. And Mm. as you say, he just presents it. And then this is how you learn, isn't it? Or how, and, um, and also I think, you know, it's such, it's not really about the disaster or, or the plot I think for him is almost a way of uh, putting people in a room and what does fear and a disaster do to a person? How do you react? What base level do you go back to when you're fearing for your life or the safety of your family? Mm. And that is when questions about prejudice and morality and um, that that's when they all start coming up, isn't it? Mm. Oh, absolutely. I think, um, and as I said, it's a short book. You know, it's not, um, you know, you, you'll fly through it. I, I did, I read it quite quickly and then I had to go back and reread certain parts because um, <laughs> it, it's it's a really extraordinary book. Uh, it left me feeling quite uneasy, I have to say, but but that's not a bad thing. You know, that's it just make, made me think and it made me um, stop and it really left such a big impression on me. So um, thank you for recommending it. I'm really I'm really glad to have read it. Oh, good. Yeah, no, and I think it's funny. So the only other thing I was thinking with the food is how he uses food as a, a way of fantasising about safety too. Like, I, you know, when Clay's thinking about getting home, um, he imagines, oh, we'll be back in the city before dinner. They could splurge at that French place on Atlantic, order the fried anchovy, the steak, a martini, just that that makes they feel safe. He feels safe mm. thinking, imagining food. And then he even says to Amanda, I want to stop at a diner on the way home, one of those old-fashioned places, chrome, jukeboxes, corned beef hash, the, um, you know, the things a person or, or the only things a person ever wanted were food and home. Yeah, well, that's true, isn't it? That's that's mm. really our basic needs met. But yeah, their, their needs are probably a bit more than basic. I think it's so interesting how you know when they go and do a shop, you know, they're buying their Ben and Jerry's and their um, yeah, like <laughs> filling the bathtub and everything, but also making sure they have enough wine, enough of all these sort of luxury items as well. Um, and because I, I don't think they really realise that things are quite serious until the end of the book or towards the end of the book, they're still sort of just thinking, oh, it's a blackout, so we'll just sort of sit tight for a while. Um, 
But yeah, well, you, yes, I think they're, they're thinking they don't want to imagine anything more so they keep trying to do all these normal things and, mm. you know, it's that. And I think that came out with the pandemic, didn't it, where it, suddenly anyone could get COVID, the amount of money you had or the amount mm. of food you had or whatever it wasn't necessarily going to protect you. And I think that's the feeling I get, the unease from this book is that oh, there is nothing that's in our control perhaps. Mm. Totally, mm. and and without our phones, you know, these little things that we keep in our pockets mm. all the time, you know, they're completely dead. And even Clay trying to get to this, the shops and the GPS is gone, so he gets hopelessly lost. <laughs> um, lost. You know, yeah. it is, and I think that that's another thing that the author is trying to point out is that our complete reliance on these devices is something that we need to investigate a little bit and um, or a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, as this is new to us, really, us people in us yeah. in the 40s and 50s now, we've come to it in our lifetime, whereas his children, my children, have had it their whole lives. Yeah. What, you know, what effect is that having on us and them and all those things? So it's, he's not shying away from it being an uneasy novel, but I think he presents it in a way that is very comprehensible and very relatable to, yeah. to the Yeah, writer. and very accessible. You can mm. take it as deeply as you want to without being knocked over the head with it, but also it leaves a lot more to uh, for you to ponder on and, and think about, yeah. Mm. But, yeah, I have yeah, to find, I have to say that the food in there, none of the food in it really did it for me. <laughs> like it's sort of the packet cakes and the um, the cereals and the um, brie and chocolate sandwiches, and I wonder if he yep. if that was intentional. None of it was super-duper appetising, I didn't think, to me at least. Um well, yeah, because actually it's really interesting because emotionally you read it with a very tight stomach and I wonder, mm. and that feeling, you know, that feeling of I don't know what else to do, I'll eat, and then you think, oh, I don't really want to eat. And I, I wonder if that's really us feeling what the characters felt, like, well, it's mm. dinner time, let's pretend everything's normal and make this bowl of pasta. Actually, in fact, I think Ruth, there's a quote I've got somewhere about Ruth saying, well, she accepted a bowl of pasta, she didn't know what else to do, so she ate. Yeah. But it's not enjoyable. No. And, yeah, we've had other books, haven't we, where food has not been a comfort. It's been a, sort of an uneasy moment in the plot or what have you. But, yeah, I just thought it was really fascinating. Mm. And I feel in such a small book every word has been so carefully chosen and every yeah. every time he refers to food it's, it's loaded, you know, um, and I think I really think that's just so clever. And, yeah, no, so I would highly recommend reading yeah. it and, um, but certainly made me think about the kind of food I would reach for instinctively um, to cook um, <laughs> if I was in that situation. And to actually, to be honest, it probably would be pasta of some form because it's just the, the comfort of carbohydrates and garlic and oil, you know. Yes. <laughs> you can't kind of go past it, can you? But, yeah, it's something worth thinking about for sure. But I'm glad we read it and uh, it was, I think next time we'll have to go to a bit of a, a brighter, more more comforting read perhaps. Yes. <laughs> yeah, a bit more comfort from from what we're living through at the moment too. But, well, actually, as another recommendation, if people are curious about his writing but don't feel this is the right time to be reading that kind of um, book, then he's actually on Audible. There's a free um, short story he's written that's just gone up on Audible, mm. made especially for Audible, and it's called There Are Flowers in Ohio. And I listened to it in the car yesterday and it's a story about a family and 
and how the adult siblings have to come together to clean out their family home when their mother falls ill. And it goes back in time to one of, well, for all of them, but one character, one sibling in particular, um, and it kind of explores how the paths not taken can shape, shapes against and shape our lives. Mm. And it's a lovely, and actually Stuart and I listened to it together. We just dropped Lily back at college and I was thinking how poignant it was to listen to this story about a family in transition and finding a new shape while we are literally doing that as well. And, again, he just writes so beautifully and empathetically about characters who also are pretty flawed mm. um, but, but yeah, just in a very compassionate way. So that's a easier entry into oh, his work well, perhaps listen to that actually that's um that sounds great yeah but I agree with you I think he's a really incredible writer and such I've been listening to him talk a lot and such a lovely man he just um oh yeah great voice like real, mm, mm. well I think that brings us to the end mm. of I can't believe we're up to episode eight uh we really hope you've enjoyed our chat and that it has given you some ideas for things you might like to cook and read um in the coming weeks or months uh we'll be back with a new episode soon but in the meantime thank you for listening thank you to our amazing producer christy yeah. reading um for putting this together and smith and jones for the music as always um did you want to say anything before we say our goodbyes no and just yeah thank you yes thank you as well for for listening and please keep um writing in with yes. either your own recommendations or suggestions or also write to us if you'd like Sophie and I to recommend um, a recipe and book and that wine offer is still there. So if you write oh, yeah, to maybe. us and we read out your letter, then, yeah. Just for first-time you listeners, you, you'll better explain that, yeah. Yes, that's right. Sorry, yes. Uh, the letter we read on each show, the letter writer receives a case of Highgate wines from single vineyard sellers mm-hmm. uh, and we'll have their link to their website because you can still get a discount. Actually, any of our listeners uh, can get a 20% discount on any wine they purchase online um, by putting in the code, which we'll have in our newsletter, Yes, which is our acronym, S-T-E. What is it saying? Yeah. 20. That's amazing. Thank you, Single Vineyard Sellers. That's really incredibly generous. All right. Well, thanks, Jermaine. Well, we'll see you next time. And um, in the meantime, I'm going to get reading all those recommendations and our next book as well. Looking forward to the next time. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Sometimes I get to thinking I ought to take up drinking just to drown out all these memories Maybe I could down a whiskey bottle And head out on the highway Just to see if it'll bring some peace But I ain't a drinking girl I'm just a small town woman Trying to find my way in a lonesome world And I ain't a whiskey girl I'm just a small town woman Trying to walk a straight line in a crooked world